Most journeys don't involve going in a straight line from point A to point B. There are usually twists and turns along the way. Sometimes we blow it and have to make a fresh start. So how can we get it right in our journey with Christ? There is a book in the Old Testament that can really help. A disagreement and a decision. In 1 Corinthians 16, 12, we read this. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Now think about what's happening in this passage. Paul, the apostle, is telling his friend and partner in ministry, Apollos, I really, really, really think it's God's plan for you to go to Corinth. I mean, I can see so many ways this is exactly what needs to happen. And Apollos says, Paul, you are convinced I need to go and I am just as convinced I don't need to go. That's not what I need to do right now. No way. <laughs> Was it going through his mind? Hey, this is the apostle, Paul. Paul relented and respected Apollos' decision and Apollos decided not to go to Corinth and Paul said, okay. If an apostle was talking to you about what you should do, would you say, no, I'm not seeing it that way. <laughs> Life is filled with making decisions, all kinds of decisions. And everyone in this room right now stands or soon will stand at a key fork in the road. It can be about a job or a school or a relationship or an activity or responding to the unexpected. It can be about deciding whether to do something that God wants. Knowing a decision needs to be made can sometimes produce anxiety, disagreement, or avoidance. When Rochelle and I were married a long time ago in a galaxy far away, it'll be 49 years this December, um, we came back from the honeymoon and we were renting a house and we had brought our miscellaneous furniture and stuff there to the house and we had to decide how we were going to arrange the furniture. And uh, I'm a high efficiency guy, you know, kind of like Disneyland, move them in, move them out, you know, whatever. Rochelle was promoting hospitality. And as we stared at the living room, we couldn't decide how to arrange the furniture. Uh, I thought this was the perfect way to do it, and she thought this is how it should happen, and we couldn't agree, so we decided, this was our decision, to not do anything. <laughs> and the furniture sat there for a day, two days, a week, week and a half. <laughs> And at one point, I don't remember who said what, but one of us said, hey, I've got an idea. What if we were to da-da-da-da-da? And then the other said, yeah, and we could da-da-da-da-da. And we came up with something that we have, for 49 years now, called an us decision. <laughs> it was something that drew from what each party 
saw, but it was something new. And we actually celebrated our new arrangement of furniture because it was us. It was something that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the two of us. Well, decisions can be of all different types. For example, uh, my last assignment, I was in Minnesota. And Minnesotans are proud of the fact that they wear cutoffs at, you know, minus 10 degrees. And, you know, they're very, you know, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And one of the things that uh, the community of Rochester would do was sponsor something called the Polar Plunge. What that meant is they would go chisel out the ice in the river and make a place where you could jump in and then people would jump in. (laughs) Someone came up to me and said, so are you gonna do the polar plunge? That decision is what's called a (laughs) no-brainer. Now some decisions are a simple A or B. Uh, For example, okay, should I get the beige you know, SUV or get the, you know, gray one. Some decisions are a conflicted decision. You know, you know the right way to go, but there is a strong pull to go the other way. I encounter that a lot driving in Memphis. (laughs) I know what the right thing is to do, but that guy doesn't deserve (laughs) niceness. So it really challenges my pastoral, you know, manner. Some decisions that we will face are an escape route decision. In other words, we see what's coming and we're desperate for an off-ramp. I need some way where I can avoid this. Some decisions are a dead end. You've hit a brick wall and you're going, I don't know how to go from here. Uh, Some decisions are what I call, now if you've, you know, watched The Incredibles, you know where the term came from, but some decisions are what I call the frozone. Here's a passage. It's actually in the Bible. This is from 1 Kings 18.21. It says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. In other words, they were just frozen. Can't decide. Some decisions are very high-cost decisions. By faith... Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That was a high-cost decision. How can we discern and execute great decisions? You know, what if you had a, a... time machine to see how your decisions would work out you know some of you would say man I would have loved to have known about 10 years ago that I should buy bitcoin (laughs) yeah but how do you know that that decision would truly work your good there are people who've won lotteries and things like that and it has destroyed their lives so even if you had a time machine how can you be sure that the outcome you desire is the one that's going to work your good? How do you know that a decision is truly good? Well, I am very happy to report that there is one particular book in the Bible that explains how to make great decisions. And this book is actually specifically recommended to us by the Apostle Paul. If you were to ask Paul, hey, what's a good book of the Bible for us to read? He would actually recommend this book to us. 
How do I know this? From 1 Corinthians 10, he says this, for I do not want you, he's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 25,000 or 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The majority of the events that Paul is referring to in this passage in his letter to the church in Corinth are actually recorded in the book of Numbers. And then Paul says this in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. What he's saying is these events that were recorded in numbers the actual events are happened as examples in other words God made it clear through consequences do you remember what I just read 23,000 fell in a day serpents or snakes attacked the destroyer destroyed that was God making a point and the point was sin bad <laughs> obedience good follow me good Furthermore, in those incidents, God added oral instruction. He didn't just unleash consequences, but through Moses, he said, let me explain to you what's happening here. Let me help you understand why this is happening. God was actually using something called yasar or musar, which is a term that refers to discipline. Here's a passage, Deuteronomy 8.5. He says, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining, that's Yasar, disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. That verse is saying is that God's relationship to Israel was the relationship of father to son. And God was musaring them, which is oral instruction with appropriate incentives. In other words, he told them, here's what you need to know, and then he provided the incentive plan. And in some cases, when they blew it, there were significant consequences. Interestingly, it was written, meaning Moses actually wrote down what happened and what God said. And we weren't there. We, we didn't receive God's direct admonition and we don't often in our daily lives have God actually speak to us. But Israel did and the accounts in Numbers provide written instruction for us. In fact, when Paul says these things were written for our instruction, he's using the word nuthesia, which is nuthetao, uh, to admonish. These passages were actually written by Moses for our benefit so that he could pull us back when we're about to go off track. Numbers gives relevant instruction to Christians in Corinth and in Memphis. 
It diagnoses how bad decisions were made and tells us how to make good ones. There are five decision-making benefits in the book of Numbers. It provides examples of poor decisions, check. Consequences obvious, 23,000 die in a day, serpents destroyer, check. An analysis of what went wrong, check. You know how you'll have a replay in a, in a football game and the commentators will talk about and they'll zero in on something and say, you'll notice right here where this guy's positioned. Here we've got commentary by God. Here's how they went wrong. Here's how they set themselves up to make a poor decision. Perfectly recorded, check. Specifically selected for us, check. So let's get some background on numbers, shall we? Just talk about this book. All right, first, where does the book of Numbers fit in the big five? That's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis is the origin story. It tells how we got here and how Israel came to be. Exodus is the account of how God redeemed his people. Leviticus explains how a redeemed people should live. Numbers is a 38-year travel diary. It didn't have to be that long if they'd made a good decision, but they made a really bad one. And so what should have been a one-year travel journal became a 38-year travel diary. And then Deuteronomy is a pep talk before the big game, before they go take the land. The title of the book's a little interesting. Uh, the title for the book is actually the title that was assigned by the translators of a thing called the Septuagint. But uh, I think they named it that because there were a lot of numbers in numbers. But the interesting thing to me is that the point of the book of Numbers is it's actually not about the numbers. That's one of the lessons that Israel had to learn. I like the Hebrew title of the book, which is Bamidbar, which is in the desert of. The desert was God's classroom for training and preparation of Israel for their next great adventure. The book was written in 1406 BC. We know this because in Numbers 16, uh, 36, 13, uh, Moses says, these are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded to the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. So this was written by Moses just before he died, uh, before actually walking into, which he didn't, walking into the promised land. And so this account of Numbers was actually written after the fact. And it recounts a journey with occasional administrative sidebars from Sinai. Uh, when we look at verse 1 in a few minutes, they're at Mount Sinai. They've arrived at that mountain. Certain things are going to happen that are of profound impact. And then 38 years later, they actually enter the promised land. Uh, the caravan is going to move out in chapter 10, verse 11, 19 days after what we read about in verse 1 of chapter 1. And then after that, it's only 13,870 days of camping until they arrive on the east bank of the Jordan River. Chapter 3 is the route itinerary. It actually tells us the different locations they want. And uh, there were 41 different Koa campgrounds that they went to. I don't know if that was a Koa campground, but it was 41 different campsites 
that they went to. Uh, now, they did have this going for them. They had cloud-based GPS. They had a, that's kind of dad humor, I know, you know, waka waka. But anyway, so they had this cloud that was telling them where they needed to go. Now, the book of Numbers does not record all 13,000 days, you know. Day 12,995, had manna chilled. It doesn't do all that. But key events along the way come up for very close inspection. And in this series, we are going to look at eight of those key days. When we identify, and really when God shows us who Pastor Next is, we will actually do a ninth sermon about the day of Joshua's succession that is recorded in the book of Numbers. But for now, we're going to do eight of these key days that we're going to look at. And I think there's a striking comparison between Israel and first of Anne. Uh, Israel, during this journey, they eventually arrive at a place where they have a new leader. We're looking for a new pastor. It was about the new generation picking up where the older left off. We need to figure out how the next generation is going to lead us. They were going to take the land. We're here to impact the city. They had two years plus 38 years of preparation. I'm not thinking that's a good comparison I want to make, but it was an unknown season of preparation for them. So with that, let's jump into the book of Numbers, starting with chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, which will be the focus of our attention this morning. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So basically we are 13 months from Egypt saying take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families by their fathers households according to the number of names every male head by head from 20 years old and upward whoever is able to go out to war in Israel you and Aaron shall number them by their armies I want to talk about the numbers trap they do what God asks they number the people and the count they come up with is 603,550 combat ready men And at first glance, that seems like a troop strength assessment. You know, how how big an army have you got? And it seems natural to make decisions when you stand at a crossroads based on numbers or on resources. Is that what's really going on here? Is that what God is doing? God commanded a second census 38 years later. And the count was almost identical. The second census was 601,730 versus the first census of 603,550. So it was about 1,500 less. But here's one of the things that happened. Now, we won't talk about this until we do a sermon that'll be uh, three weeks from today. No. Yeah, I think so. The first group said... We don't have enough resources to take the land. The group that actually took the land was actually 1,500 fewer. So basically what God was saying is it's, it's not about you. It's not about your numbers. 
It's not about numbers. Now, we'll drill down on that a little bit in a few weeks when we talk about the really bad decision that Israel made because they were looking at the numbers. But basically what God was saying is something similar to what uh, I remember in a movie. Now, this was a movie called Night and Day. How many of you have seen Night and Day? It has Tom Cruise in it. All right, a few of you. All right. He's uh, Roy Miller, and he's talking to June Havens. And, when, and he's, you know, this super spy guy, and uh, she is this person who haps, happens to have gotten kind of enmeshed in this. And when he's at one point describing the need for her to trust him, he says, June, with me, without me. With me, without me. That's what God is doing. It doesn't matter what your numbers are. With me, without me. And that's what's happening with the book of Numbers. It's not about the numbers. The book of Numbers, the first census, is going to lay groundwork for that insight. But there is something more going on here that I want to focus in on. In Exodus 30, 12 through 16, God introduced the census tax. Here's what it says. This is from verses 12 through 14 in Exodus 30. When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Ah, no wonder. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. So when the Lord is commanding that a census be taken, he's saying, and I want you to embrace the census tax. The census tax represents about a fifth of an ounce of silver or a half shekel. Do you remember when uh, we did a little follow the laser light and someone found two, and I used old quarters that have silver in them, found two quarters? That represented two people's worth of census tax. Why did they do that? What was that about? That was God's way of saying, you have me to thank for the fact that you are here. When you take a census, I don't want you to think it's about you, it's about the numbers. It's about me and all that I have done for you. I mean, think about it for a minute. There are 600,000 of you who are capable of going to war as we prepare to go to a promised land. Who did the 10 plagues? I mean, you were servants in Egypt. Who did the 10 plagues? You did, Lord. Who brought you to the sea? And then as Pharaoh is coming, I used the sea as your means of deliverance and his means of demise. Who did that? Well, you did, Lord. And then they came into this wilderness and they basically completely emptied the pantry within a month and a half. And they said to the Lord, we're going to die out here. So God provided manna. And manna sustained them for a 40-year-long camping trip. So when you number who you are. You don't go, ha ha, look at us. 
You say, we wouldn't be here except God is our difference maker. Not my army, not my abilities, not my resources. I am here because of him and his goodness and his provision. And that's what's going on here when he's having them number the people. He wants them to understand God is our X factor. God is our difference maker. With me, without me. One of the best things you can do to prepare to make good decisions is to tell God that you have him to thank that you have come this far. You'll get an opportunity to do that with the congregation on Thanksgiving Eve. We'll gather together as a church and it's an opportunity for you to say, I have God to thank for where I am. I want to show you one of the ways that I do this on a consistent basis. So this is a, a journal. I have a number of these. And this is what I call my pra praise journal. So this one looks like it started in uh, July of 2020. And so I have a, a Sabbath each week. You probably can't read that, which is fine. I don't want you reading my diary. But, um, but one day a week, uh, my prayer time consists of thanking God for all the ways in which I would not be where I am except for him and all the ways that he has blessed my family, my church, the people I'm working with, etc. And so basically that's my way of applying this principle we're talking about. I want God to hear from me. I recognize that I would not be here and that's literally the case. I would not be here if it were not for you. Now, one example, there's many that I could think of, but one example would be this. In my last church assignment, I was in Rochester, Minnesota, and I would typically go out and ride my bike for exercise. And uh, the this is in the early part of that assignment. Uh, Rochelle was tied up with something to where she couldn't come until about a week before this incident I'm going to recount. So she was there, which I'm grateful for. And I went out to go bike riding on a Friday, I think, or, yeah, I think on a Friday. And uh, about two miles out had a flat tire. Now, I would have been riding out in, into the country where it's cornfields and nowhere. And the tire was badly punctured, so I had to walk it back. So I walked the two miles back to our apartment where we lived. And then on Sunday uh, after church, I thought, you know, I probably ought to exercise since I didn't, uh, you know, get to go a couple days ago. So there was a little kind of fitness center at our apartment. So I was up there and I did some elliptical and was on a rowing machine. And after doing the rowing machine, man, my shoulders started to hurt really bad. And uh, I, I was not good. I thought, I'm a, did I pull something? Do you pull both? How does that work? And Someone was there and saying, are you all right? And I said, I'm not sure. Would you go get my wife? And Rochelle came and she said, you're having a heart attack, which I was. Guys are have trouble admitting these sorts of things, but you know what I mean. And so she called and they took me to Mayo and I got great care. Uh, the, the LAD, the Widowmaker was 95% blocked. They put in a stent. And uh, one of the things they said, I mean, there is damage to my heart, but one of the things they said 
that saved me was that because of years of biking, I had all kinds of different blood vessels that had um, peripheral circulation that had helped. So when I tell you that I have God to thank, I have God to thank that he worked out all the details for Rochelle to be there, for me to have a flat tire, to be in a place where great care was accessible. And so I wouldn't be here except for the goodness of God. And I bet you have stories like that too, and I'm just telling you one. And I'm sure that when I get to heaven, I'm going to actually find out a bunch more stories where I didn't really see what was going on, and yet God protected me or protected you. Let me show you an epic fail. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. God would say to us, you have me to thank for whatever good you have experienced, whatever success you have enjoyed, whatever accomplishments you have realized. So to prepare to make good decisions, tell God that you get it. Tell him that he is the one, and you recognize it, who has brought you this far Think of this as kind of looking back, looking at your history, looking back and thanking him, which is what the census was about, is critical to making good decisions as you pivot to look into the future. I like to think of it as look to the past in order to see the future in its proper light. God is our difference maker as we face the future. God is the difference maker for us as a church, for you as individuals heart conditions matter numbers don't the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his now that's not a blank check as if God will support you no matter what you want to do but God will strongly support whatever devoted hearts want if your heart is his, what you aspire to do is to live for him. So what is he calling you to do? On the day of Pentecost, God used 120 spirit-filled souls as a catalyst to winning 3,000 in one day. And the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit today. He's capable of doing that. The enemy of our souls wants to discourage us or dissuade us. You know, maybe there's something that God is prompting you to do, but you have a ton of reasons why not. Finances, I don't think we can do this. Our abilities, the voice of the naysayers, a full schedule, challenging circumstance. When Jonathan saw a unit of Philistines, he said, come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. 
Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not constrained to save by many or by few. So, as we're asking the question, how can we make good decisions? The first thing I would say is look back, see his good hand in your past, and use that as the proper backdrop to see the future. Now, this is not just about material provision, looking back and seeing, you know, how God has blessed you materially. Uh, In Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, which my understanding is that you worked through the book of Ephesians uh, not too long ago. Ephesians chapter 1 is about this. If you know who you are and what you have in Christ, you will not live the same way. And then in chapter 1, Paul outlines six things that are true of you. If you know Jesus Christ, you have been chosen You've been adopted. You are sons and daughters of God. You have been redeemed. You are an insider who has received information about where things are going. You've received an inheritance. And you've been sealed. All of that is a part of what God has done for us. So look at that and use that as a lens to look at the future. Remembering who you are and what you have in Christ makes all the difference. Remembering what he has done helps you do what Jesus asks in the future. And that's where God started Israel in Numbers chapter 1. You'll be better able to trust him as your difference maker if you'll look back and see the ways that he was your difference maker in the past. I want to pray for anyone who is facing a decision where you need God to come through. And so uh, what I'd like to do would be invite everyone here to uh, close your eyes and bow your head. And then I want to do this. Um, If you are facing a decision right now that is a challenging decision where you're saying, God, I need guidance, I need you to lead me, I need you to show me what I need, I'd like you to just raise your hand so that I can pray specifically for you. Anybody who's facing a challenging decision, you're saying, I'm not sure what to do. Very good. All right. Keep your hands up as I pray. Father, we have you to thank, particularly for the fact that we have been rescued from sin because of you and what you have done. We would not be here if it weren't for you. And we would not be standing in your presence someday with joy immeasurable if it were not for you. And so we are using that history to say, show us how to be wise in the decisions that we are facing. You know each one who's raised a hand. You know those who perhaps haven't but are facing a decision. We want to get it right And so I am pleading for each person who is facing a decision that you would open their eyes to see all the ways that you have come through for them in the past and that they would arrive at a place where they're able to say, I can look to the future with calm and with poise because I know how God has worked on my behalf in the past. We are trusting you, even as we are pleading for guidance, clear guidance, to know exactly what it is we need to do and to be found faithful to you. 
We are pleading these things in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior. Amen.